Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Today, Governor Dan Malloy kicks off the state legislative session with a speech that will outline his budget plans and priorities. It's an austere budget. I think everybody knows that. Austere, yes. A master of understatement, that man. Austere. Think big cuts meant to address not only a $550 million shortfall now, but the billions of dollars in shortfalls coming down the road. He's calling for a new way of looking at the state's budget, which might include more executive branch oversight of how the state's money is spent. Given the bad news that is likely to be delivered, it seems state lawmakers might actually be pretty happy about not having to make those decisions. On this budget day, that's our main topic here on The Wheelhouse. We'll also talk about our business climate, as Aetna is the latest big state company to make noises about how great other states are. And we'll look ahead to next week's New Hampshire primary. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Colin McEnroe is out today. Hope you're feeling better, Colin. Joining me, though, in studio is Dan Haar. He's a columnist for the Hartford Current. Hello once again, Danny. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Happy Budget Day to you. Happy Uh, Budget Day. And happy Budget Day to Harriet Jones, WNPR's business editor and reporter. Hi, Harriet. Hi, John. How are you? I'm doing quite well. So let's get started with what the governor is expected to say. In your newspaper, uh, the Hartford Current, this morning, we're reading some details that have been leaked out to the press about what the governor is planning to say in this budget coming up. I mean, big picture, Dan, what do we expect the the governor to say today? Uh, He's going to say the words that we've been hearing him. uh, He's going to reiterate the words we've been hearing him say for the past week or so. Uh, But I think the message is the, the sort of permanence of this new way of being. Most politicians, certainly none on the national stage, can get elected by saying, it's sunset in America. We're not, we're, you know, we're, things are not ever going to be the way they are. But if you listen carefully to the words that the governor is going to say today, it's, he's, he's essentially saying it's sunset in America. And I don't think he's talking about Connecticut. I don't think this is a Connecticut has a lousy climate and other states are doing great. If you look, yesterday a lot was circulating around about uh, Oklahoma and North Dakota, or maybe it was South Dakota, one of those Dakotas, <laughs> with these massive budget deficits. Massachusetts sure. is dealing with something close to a billion dollars, not a billion, but between $500 million and a billion dollars. Uh, and this is something endemic to the economy as a whole. And the governor is attempting today to wrestle that not as a gap that we need to fill in some way now, but as a permanent, uh, you know, it's the perma session. This the, is the, that's what this the, 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 the permanent state of fiscal crisis. Permanent, this is yes. what this right, is but, what Ben Barnes has been talking about for some time. Well, that's right. And instead of instead of him saying the words, we're in a permanent state of fiscal crisis, what we're going to see today is the structure that goes with it. And the structure that goes with it is a, is is a, a, a different way of looking at the budget. And everybody says we've got a different way of looking at the budget. This really is. Okay, so how exactly is it a different way of looking at the budget? What we hear the governor saying is essentially we need to start looking really clearly at what state revenues are coming in and budgeting to what we can expect to bring in, as opposed to budgeting for all sorts of plans that we want to have and then hoping that the uh, books actually balance, which is the way Frankly, we have been doing the state budget for as long as I can remember, Dan. So this is a big change, huh? One thing is personnel. 
That's that's a big one. It might I, it may or may not be the big one. We don't know the details, but personnel. We're going to stop seeing. Uh, the same army. We're still going to have an army of people. Connecticut is still by far the largest employer in Connecticut, uh, but we're, we're still going to have that. But it's it's going to be a much smaller army of people, and I don't just mean trimming. They're really going to start to a downward flow in the number of people who work for the state over, I say, you know, a decade, not necessarily tomorrow, not July 1st. And a downward flow, I mean, does that, there's a lot of ways to couch that. One is layoffs, layoffs of state workers. Is that what we're talking about? Yes. Yeah. So just cutting jobs, we're going we're gonna to do that. There's the layoffs were in the memo that, that's, that's coming out of the Malloy uh, office, budget office. So, so th- that's one of the things, Harry. But the, all these other big structural issues that we'll, we'll get to in a little bit, I mean, a, a lot of what's hanging over this session is the specter of GE leaving. Of course, they're leaving for a state, Massachusetts, which has another big budget problem. I mean, right. all, if, <laughs> if, if it's true that all the states are having some sort of a problem, there's maybe uh, nothing specific about Connecticut here. But um, we'll get to GE and in just a moment. But I mean, what do we see coming out of this budget? If indeed we're talking about a a new way of looking at the budget, budgeting only toward potential revenues, maybe layoffs of state workers, as someone who covers the the business sector here, what do you see? I think it's interesting to look at, you know, the governor doesn't want to talk about tax increases. Um, Last year, uh, we were told there was no tax increases. There were Revenue enhancements. Yes. <laughs> um, so this year we've been promised even no, none of those, no raised fees, no different ways of calculating taxes that bring in more money. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how sustainable that is over the long run. When do we take a look at that revenue side of the picture um, that's a little bit toxic politically? But that's something that the tax panel has been looking at. The, the governor appointed this tax panel some time ago, and it's now come out with its recommendations. And a lot of its recommendations are to modernize the way we raise revenue, to go and find people where they're actually living and doing business, to tax them there. But modernizing um, the way we raise revenue. Uh, tell us more about that. That sounds like a, a long way around raising our taxes. But yeah, <laughs> so they're talking about trying to um, eliminate a lot of the complications in the tax code. We've, I mean, we've heard about that in Washington, too, as being a fashionable idea. But, you know, to, to um, try and b- broaden out the tax base, uh, have everybody pay more or less the same, uh, make the tax code fairer, um, but also to take a look at the ways people do business these days, the way commerce is done. You know, for instance, the sharing economy, uh, for instance, digital downloads, that type of thing. We're doing business in different ways, and the tax code is really not caught up with that. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how many of those ideas the state in the long term can actually take on board. Well, one of the big ones is the tax on uh, uh, computer services, yep. data processing. Yep. And that's viewed in in policy circles as a modernization of the tax code. But unfortunately, uh, and we're going to get to Aetna, the single biggest objection that Aetna has had over the past year or so was that tax, which was proposed to go from 1% to 3% last year. So it's one thing to say we're going to go after a, 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 the, 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 the modern economy. Clearly, if we'd started a country you know, today, that would be part <laughs> of the economy. That's one of the things that's taxed. That's part of economic activity. You can't get it done. Because no other, well, because some other state somewhere isn't going to tax it. That's that's very true. I mean, that's that's the the conundrum, right? It, it would be a more efficient way to raise revenue, yes. but it's politically toxic. And we did see that with Aetna. They said if you raise that data processing tax, it's going to raise our tax liability thirty percent. Yeah. And so you yeah. know the irony <laughs> the irony is that as written, the bill to raise the tax from one percent to three percent contained a loophole under which Aetna would have had to pay zero. 
Well, but, but look, if, if, in, if indeed it's true, Dan, that all of the states in one way or another are struggling with this issue of like, how do we tax? How do we spend? How do we deal with long term obligations that we've had on the books for a very long time? I mean, the Etnas and the GEs and everyone else of the world who are shopping around for where they want to do business and trying to influence the tax code. I mean, we're all going to be playing from the same playbook, aren't we? I mean, all of the states are trying to modernize the way they're raising taxes. They're all trying to get into the modern economy. It's not just Connecticut, right? What's Pfizer doing? They're inverting to Ireland. That's the biggest company to, to try it so far, a $160 billion deal to become not a U.S. company that has all the benefits of being a U.S. company. So they're going to figure out ways to do it. Uh, it, and so in, in a sense, we have a, a, a bit of corporate extortion. But you're, the other problem with the idea that we're all playing in the same boat is there is going to be a state, lots of states, who don't do it, right, because of the political environments. That they obviously are the lower cost states and the southern states, which are some of the lower cost states. <laughs> which are all, all the lower cost states. Of, yeah. we're, we're talking with Danny Hart from the Hartford Current. Uh, he's a columnist there. He's been writing quite a bit about what's going to come up in this uh, new state budget that we're going to hear from uh, Dan Malloy coming out today. Uh, Harry Jones, who's WNPR's business editor and reporter. If you want to join us, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Where We Live. Uh, before we get too much into what some of these companies are doing, and while we're talking about what is expected from the state, uh, Republican proposals to prevent uh, a member of the Appropriations Committee who has a job that could benefit from actions taken by that committee. This is one of the things that the, uh, the, the state Republicans are talking about. Here's Len Fasano. You should be on the Appropriations Committee if that committee is funding an entity for which you work for. <laughs> okay. So this is, this is one of those many things that the, that the state Republicans are coming out with uh, uh, as, as we get ready for this budget session. Harriet, it's going to be, I think, in many ways, a completely toxic session coming up because we have Republicans saying, my goodness, we haven't taken a look at um, all the big structural issues. We're going to probably look at the way business is done. That's what Len Fasano is talking about there. Who's able to actually serve on what committee? Uh, we're going to hear calls from Democrats saying Republicans need to come out with a better, better, bigger plan of their own. I guess I'm just wondering what we might foresee as far as real ugliness around the state budget, around the state economy, all of this conversation about how Connecticut's a bad place to do business, it seems like we're just going to hear more and more of that from almost everybody over the course of the next couple of months. Well, that's right. And it may not just be between the two parties. I mean, what ugliness are we going to see between the governor who has these proposals and then the Democratic legislators who have to pass the budget? We saw that again last year when, you know, the, the, the budget that came out was Malloy tried to wash his hands of really what the, the, the Democratic leaders in the legislature were doing. So, and again, you know, the Republicans have not come up with proposals that, you know, when we saw last year with the uh, hospital tax, uh, that they raised a lot of objections to that, but didn't have, you know, concrete proposals. Or, you know, where is that revenue going to come from instead? You, you're, you, in a recent uh, column, called him the great Dan Alini, uh, Dan Malloy standing <laughs> up there and maybe trying to do a little bit of a Houdini act with people probably on both sides. The, you know, the Len Fasanos of the world, the Republicans saying, you know, we're not – the Democrats have driven this into the ditch. Beth Bayh and a lot of the other folks on the Democratic side saying, we're looking at a budget here that's going to really hurt an awful lot of people and we're not so thrilled with it either. I mean, what are we looking at here? I actually think there's going to be a, a less toxic session. Interesting. And, and the issues would – point to it being more toxic. But what you're seeing, and speaking of Senator Bayh, I quoted her in this morning's uh, paper in last night's column, and, and she had said to some other reporters during the week that it's time. 
we, we do have to we do have to cut the employee ranks. It's time. There's no place else to go. And so what you have is a combination on the one hand of issues that seemingly would be impossible to solve and therefore creating a toxic session. But on the other hand, you have uh, Senator Fasano uh, and, and Representative Claritas are, are, are much uh, much more ready to work, eager to work with the Democrats. The, these particular characters, both on the Democratic side and the Republican side, are more likely to work well together if given the chance than other sets of characters in the past. And so that's a good point. Well, what about this other piece of, of the governor's proposal that we'll see today that really puts more authority on in the spending side on his commissioners, the people who are running these state agencies, essentially taking some of the authority, the budgeting authority, away from the, the legislature and saying, you know, we're going to tell you how to spend the money. We're the ones who've got to run these big departments and, and spend the money the right way. This is a perfect example of what I was just talking about, working together. The governor has created a proposal that has united virtually everyone at the Capitol on both the Republican side and the Democratic side against him. It's not going to happen. <laughs> They're all united. <laughs> well, okay. So uh, before we we move on to this and, and talk about some of the, the other businesses, anything else that we're looking at here? I mean, with all of the things that we are really concerned around around the budget, there's also always going to be these issues around the sharing economy. I mean, Uber was something we were talking about last time. We were talking about whether or not we can sell Tesla cars here. I mean, in the midst of all the things that we have to do, the bread that we have to bake that is the budget, there's also all these little side issues that we've been following for years, and whether or not these things come up or not, who knows? Right. It's going to be interesting to see how much time there is for this. this is the short session, so you know how much time is there for. And I think it points out the the, the problems in governing is that you know, you want to try to take a, a, a kind of um, a broader look, a more strategic look at how you're doing these things. But, you know, with the permanent fiscal crisis that we're not allowed to call that anymore, um, you know, we end up firefighting all the time. Uh, the legislature a- ends up uh, involved just in, you know, literally how do we, you know, balance the checkbook instead of being able to take this broader look at okay, what kind of state do we want to be? What companies do we want to, you know, attract here? How do we want to manage this economy? What does it make sense for Connecticut to be doing in the modern world? Do casinos count as a side issue? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll actually, we'll talk about casinos in just a moment. I want to get to one quick phone call before I break. Mary's calling from Hartford. Hi, Mary. Go ahead. Hi. So one of the ugliness of this new economy is that people are going to turn on the environment. People are going to pit the environment against economic development. And we're already seeing that with the bottled watering plant, the gas pipeline, and other projects that are being proposed. But Connecticut really needs to protect its natural resources and look to the green economy, which is happening in other states. And we haven't had enough investment, investment in green infrastructure that creates green jobs. And so people aren't seeing that our healthy natural environment creates a really great world and jobs. And it would be super if the media, the current and in WNPR would start publishing stories about the green economy that's happening in other states and Ma- green jobs. Well, Mary, thank you very much for that. So there's the green economy, certainly. There's whether or not we're going to be able to do anything about transportation and things that could actually help the environment as well because we, we're in the state of permanent fiscal crisis. What do you say to Mary, Dan? Well, big solar is an example of uh, a way in which uh, the, the, the need for fiscal progress does coincide with with uh, in, environmental progress as well, or environmental stewardship. We we are starting to see you know big solar in much the, in the same way that you have big oil. Uh, the caller is referring to in the bottled water plant 
an, an example of the uh, in Bloomfield. There's a company that is trying to buy 1.8 million gallons a day of water from MDC, which is a lot of water. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with MDC selling water, but they're bottling it and selling it, right? And so there, the responsibility belongs with consumers. Uh, you know, anybody who buys a bottle of water who lives in MDC land is 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 essentially creating an act of environmental terrorism. There's no reason to do it. It's the water that goes in the bottle. It's the same stuff. It's just stupidity. Well, it, it, yeah, whether or so, not you're buying that bottle or well, not, if right. you're approving this coming into your town, one of the thoughts is, well, we're paying uh, for this resource and we're, we're sending all this out. I mean, people need water elsewhere in bottles because they don't have as much water as we do. But Bloomfield needs the money. So Bloomfield mm-hmm. is going to approve it because they need the money for the same fiscal crisis reason that everybody else is in a jam. Yeah, which gets us back to some of the uh, issues that we always talk about, Harriet, which is, Town pitted versus town, state pitted versus state. We all have to raise revenue in our own crazy way. And so because of that, we end up with people making very uh, tiny decisions, including where to place casinos, where to put watered, uh, water bottling plants, where to locate a big uh, manufacturing headquarters, because we all need the revenue. Right. One thing i just add on the, on the green economy, I think one of the big complications right now is the price of oil. Because, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a big push to solve these issues, to get green technology underway because... $5 gas is a great motivator. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, You know, $1.77 gas, not quite so much. Not so much, yeah. Um, And again, we're seeing households who heat with oil heat um, not converting to natural gas in the the numbers that Governor Daniel Malloy had hoped that, that, that they would. So, you know, that's been a drag on that particular conversion. Yeah, in some of those states that Danny was mentioning out in the the Midwest that had these big booms around natural gas and oil. Again, not so much. These are the states that are struggling now. We're talking with Harry Jones, WNPR's business editor, Dan Haar, who's a columnist for the Hartford Current, and we're going through the week's news on the wheelhouse. Of course, it's budget day. We'll take some more of your calls on that sort of stuff. We're going to talk a little bit more about the business climate in the state, a story coming out from Aetna about how they're really in love with the city of Louisville. Oops, maybe that's a little bit worrisome. And is there potential for another casino, at least another tribe getting into the casino business here in the state? Uh, That to talk about in previewing the New Hampshire primaries coming up on Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. It's Wednesday, so it's the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. And there's a lot to talk about with Dan Haar, columnist for the Hartford Current. Harry Jones, WNPR's business editor. You can call us at 860-275-7266. Of course, full coverage coming up later on today on all things considered of the governor's budget address and what we can learn about what we're going to be looking at for this next legislative session. One thing that's bound to be mentioned endlessly this session and maybe even in some of the analysis today is Connecticut's business climate, especially in the wake of General Electric's decision to move its headquarters to Boston. Before we move on to another big company talking about how much they love being in Connecticut or not, you know, how much do you think we're going to really hear about this, Harriet, and how much of the conversation around taxes and spending and budget certainty is actually going to be influenced by this conversation about, well, well, we lost GE. Got to change it. Oh, a, a tremendous amount, and I think probably too much in some ways because GE's decision, I think, was a much longer-term, more strategic decision about where they wanted to be, what kind of company they're becoming. They're becoming, they're trying to remake themselves into this digital industrial company. They want to be in an urban environment. That's the modern trend in where you have a, a, a headquarters building. 
Um, they don't want to be in suburban Fairfield with nobody else around them. I think that was the primary driver of GE's decision. I think state taxes, you know, may have played into it somewhat. But again, we've heard Massachusetts is also in its own state of fiscal crisis. So, you know, predictability maybe of, of the state's um, tax situation, you know, may have played into it somewhat. But I think the, the, the broader decision was taken really on, you know, what type of environment they want to be in. And Connecticut doesn't really have that type of environment, that kind of big city environment yet. So it's a little bit of, it's a little bit of everything. Some people, depending on, on what they want to put as their most important issue, will say it is about taxes. Some other people will right, say it's about... Right, that's what we're going to hear. It, well, certainly it, we're going to hear that during the session. We're going to hear about why GE left and what it does mean. And of course, it's, it's you know, it's a good inflection point at which the state needs to examine its business climate. That's certainly a, a valuable exercise. And look at how it incentivizes, how it maybe grows uh, new technology companies, how it incentivizes companies to stay here. That's not, you know, that's that's certainly a productive exercise to have. I'm going to channel our good friend Keith Faniff here uh, and, and give an, a, a financial statistic. The mill rate for space, for office space in downtown Boston, where GE is going, is 29 dollars per thousand valuation. That's about in the middle of the range in Connecticut. And so you would say, well, their rate is is decent compared certainly to Bridgeport, Hartford, and New Haven, much higher mill rates. Now you consider the value of that office space on a per square foot basis. GE is moving to a place, set aside the fact that they got $145 million despite saying we don't want any special deals. GE is moving to a place that has about three or four times the tax rate on a per square foot basis as virtually any Connecticut suburb. So this idea of they're going someplace for lower taxes is just nonsense. It's like buying bottled water when you live in an MDC town. It's craziness. And so, but what we do have is, an, as exactly as Harriet said, an unpredictable environment, especially in pensions, which we're not probably going to get into, I would hope, but it's a big problem. <laughs> and, so, and so, yes, we do have a problem, but, but that's not why they're going there. And of course, we have the other side happening uh, with, with Aetna. You know. well, well, I just want to get a quick phone call from Tim in Fairfield. Hey, Tim. Hi, uh, good morning. I uh, understanding, you know, what your comment about um, Aetna and the exemption, um, I, it's kind of a comment and a question in one, I suppose, because I understand that GE has had that same exemption, not only with the state, but they actually get a uh, refund from, you know, federal taxes that they employ. This was in the journal, I guess, about a, 18 months ago or something. They have 220-some-odd in-house attorneys, you know, tax attorneys. So they work very hard to minimize um, the taxes. So... You know, it seemed that the um, the argument was over with losing the tax base, but I don't think in reality we're actually uh, collecting. Do you know? Is that the case? Uh, Tim, and thank you very much. Dan? This stemmed from a 2013 report that a tax advocacy group did, which uh, added up all of GE's uh, federal taxes uh, and tried as best as it could, based on reports, to do the state taxation and concluded that with you know, gazillions of billions of dollars of profit, GE actually had a negative tax rate between, I believe it was 08 and 11 or 12, a negative tax rate, a, a total of $2.9 billion. That is, they they achieved $2.9 billion in credits. The reason for that, and not to defend GE, yes, they employ an army of tax uh, mitigation people, is that they had enormous losses during the financial crisis. GE, of course, was and is now selling off that business in pieces, was the world's second or third largest bank. 
Okay, so it, it gets us to this conversation that we want to have about Aetna. Um, <laughs> you've walked across our state, Dan. You walked through Boston, taking a look at the business climate there. Maybe soon you'll be strolling through the the, the lovely city of Louisville, which we, we know around here is a really great basketball town. But other than that, uh, Aetna has essentially come out and said, the one place we really, really feel like we got roots in, Louisville, Kentucky. And that's got to scare just the hell out of people in Connecticut with this big building down the road. It scared us in August when Mark Bertolini said it, uh, the CEO of Aetna, and it scares us now. Uh, the problem here is one of exactly the opposite of what happened with GE. At GE, they came out with an affirmative statement June 1st. We are looking to move our headquarters. We're looking everywhere. We're forming a committee. Aetna's statement has been exactly zero. They won't even in many cases come to the phone. And so what they're saying is they're going to Louisville and saying we're going to keep the 12,000 people that are in place in Louisville. We're not saying anything about Hartford. And when we ask the question, they may or may not come to the phone, but they don't say anything. And that raises the question. Okay, so how concerned should we be about Aetna? now, Harriet? Uh, more so, I think, than about GE. GE is a, you know, is a huge brand to lose, but in terms of actual people going, you know, we're maybe losing a couple of hundred people. If we lose Aetna, it could be a much more significant loss, I think. I mean, it depends, you know, it just depends how, how they decide to break things out, where they decide to have their headquarters, where they leave certain lines, um, you know, do they leave, if they formally go to Louisville, do they start leave workers here? We, we, we have no idea. Well, it, this is, it gets back to an earlier conversation, though, about a, a company like GE or even a state like Connecticut looking at what we'll call the modern economy and saying, what do we want to play in? Where do we want to be? What do we want to do? I mean, as much as GE has transformed itself over the years from one sort of company to a very different sort of company really uh, involved in uh, uh, the financial world and then back to some other types of high-tech manufacturing, um, Aetna's got to be thinking about how their whole thing is going to shake out. I mean, the right. insurance industry is probably changing now as much as anything else is changing. Yeah, they're thinking about the profi- profitability of government healthcare plans, uh, Medicaid, <laughs> Medicare, That's right. yeah. um, which is what Humana specializes in. This is the company that they're you know, aiming to take over. They hope that deal will close later on this year. That's where Humana is headquartered in Louisville. Um, and Aetna really is looking to the future of government-provided health care and how profitable that will be, um, and maybe looking to turn itself into a company that specializes in that. Bertolini views Aetna in, in his speeches as a technology company. He wants to make the same play that uh, Jeffrey Immelt makes at GE. We are a software company. We're a technology company. We're not an insurance company. We're not taking on risk and taking in money and paying out risk <laughs> risk premiums. We're creating the technology infrastructure around which healthcare is delivered. And that's a, that's not something that you would necessarily think you would want to do far away from uh, the megalopolis. Now, Hartford may not be Boston, uh, but Louisville, in terms of proximity to you know the sort of the great urban mass of America is not Hartford. So that creates something of a conundrum. Louisville obviously is a lower-cost environment than Hartford. If we get into a situation where Aetna is looking at cost, GE is looking at urban mass, Aetna is looking at cost, then we're fighting a two-front war. And we're going to win some battles because we're in the middle, and we're going to lose some battles. There's a two-front war. Yeah, one of those low, lower-cost states. The, the funny little irony here is if, if Aetna is looking to make more of a commitment to Kentucky, the new governor of that state has, of course, Connecticut ties, has received support for his business. Matt Bevin was referred to as bailout Bevin during political <laughs> campaigns because uh, this state provided aid to him to rebuild his Bell factory that was destroyed by a fire in 2012. Then he runs in Kine- uh, Kentucky as a Republican who wants to cut down the size of state government. Just kind of, I don't know. 
Danny, is it ironic? Can I say it's ironic a little bit? It is ironic. And if you talk to, uh, if, if you get Matt Bevan in an honest moment, he'll tell you he didn't want the aid. No. Uh, that Connecticut wanted to give him the aid, but he didn't want the aid. Uh, Just like GE uh, didn't want the aid from Massachusetts, right? Well, that's right. No, that's right. So, so uh, it, it is. It is a bit of an irony, and there are some other ironies as well. You know who I think the Aetna, um, the future of Aetna is going to be an interesting problem for is Luke Bronin, because um, Pedro Zagara was accused of not being as proactive as he might have been with some of the big companies. You know, um, I don't know how fair this is, but he was accused of kind of leaving it to the governor to talk to the big companies in Hartford. So it's going to be interesting to see how Luke Bronin approaches this issue, how proactive he is in these early stages when we don't know what's going on. He's already had some interesting conversations just with some business leaders, including very small things like, can you just invest a little bit more in our community by going out to lunch more in Hartford? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's actually started to have some conversations we've seen in a way that maybe weren't being had in the capital city before, Dan. I think we can be certain that Luke Bronin has had a conversation with Mark Bertolini. We have tried but not succeeded yet in getting the uh, the contents of that discussion out into the public, and I don't know that we will, and I don't know that I don't know how important it is. The point is that Aetna hasn't said anything about what it's doing, and so we are the ones who are creating this anxiety. It's not Aetna that's putting anything out, other than the fact that on June first they were the other company in addition to GE, which said we may eventually consider moving operations out of Connecticut. Okay, so we're not saying right now that Aetna's leaving Connecticut, certainly. They do have a lot of real estate right down there near, near the highway next to the Hartford Current Building, which, by the way, I think is up for sale right now. But anyway, that's maybe no. another conversation. The, getting back to GE, though, the real estate conversation about vacant office space in Fairfield, is this a good thing, bad thing for the town of Fairfield, for the state? Oh, well, it's certainly a heck of a lot of insecurity for Fairfield, seeing that 68-acre campus come up uh, and potentially be vacant. Um, there is a commercial real estate developer who is has said they're in negotiations with GE to buy it, and they, what they've proposed for it is kind of mixed use, some educational, some commercial, maybe some residential. So, you know, there's hope for that particular parcel. But so an interesting data point um, this week. Choice Peterson, which is one of the broker, the commercial real estate brokers, they, f- they find um, office space for tenants. Um, they came out with a report on last year that said they saw the vacancy rate tick downward, which was kind of interesting. Vacancy rate in Fairfield County is enormous in mid-20s. So about a quarter of the commercial real estate is empty looking for tenants down there, which is not... Uh, you know, a, an indicator of great economic health. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they said what they're seeing is that there's still those big office buildings, the UBS, who built that enormous uh, thing right like next to Basketball the arena. Right. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of that's still empty. Things like Pitney Bowes had their headquarters on the market. Those big buildings are very hard to get rid of. What they're seeing in the kind of slightly smaller tier below that, in the multi-tenanted buildings, they're seeing the vacancy rate go down to kind of mid-teens, low-teens. And there are organic companies, they say, you know, growing up in, Stam- in uh, around Stamford, around Fairfield, um, which are are starting to take over those those office buildings. So they're starting to see something that maybe looks like a bit more of a revival. Well, and, and just that idea of like organic companies kind of growing out of, and this is this is really gets to one of these longer term structural things, Danny, that we try to talk about a little bit here on the program, which is, you know, how do we get to the point where we have an environment where more small companies can find space and can find the right place to actually grow out of nothing? So that we're not always talking about, oh my God, will GE leave? We can actually talk about how do we make sure that some of these little manufacturers or some of these little biotech companies might thrive in the state and hire more people? We start with Joe McGee's $30 billion 
I don't know if it's 30, but extremely high-priced, high-speed commuter line between New Haven and uh, New York. Uh, Joe McGee, of course, is the vice president of the Southwestern Business Council, who's been singing this song, I think, correctly for some years now. The train line that connects the shoreline to New York City has to be the thing that people want to be around. Uh, It was a generation ago, and it could theoretically be again, but it costs money, and that gets back to the budget. And it gets back to the budget. And no matter what we, we hear out of the governor over the course of the last year, Harriet talking about wanting to spend hundreds of millions, billions of dollars on transportation infrastructure, which would include rail and roads and bridges and fixing stuff. The fact is, he says he's not going to do anything unless we get a transportation lockbox, Colin's favorite word, <laughs> uh, which wouldn't happen anytime soon, certainly not during a uh, uh, a very contentious budget year and then an election year. So do we ever see anything happening? We just saw uh, Jim Cameron, the um, uh, the guru of the trains down in Fairfield County, wrote a big op-ed piece that we read in the Connecticut Mirror today that basically said, don't expect to see anything soon around these transportation right. plans. So we need a, a high-speed rail line to make Fairfield County more uh, competitive, but we're not going to get it anytime soon. Right. You know, in the lockbox, I think that, you know, it does concentrate a lot of the, the conversations around this. I've heard the Motor Transport Association, the um, people who move freight around in big trucks, they say we could talk about tolls maybe, but not until you give us the lockbox, not until we know that that money is really going to go back into improving roads, improving uh, transportation. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be a tough one for the governor. If Colin were here, he would ask the question, if we have a lockbox for transportation and a lockbox for pension uh, payments, can we put them all in the same lockbox and take out the money when we need it? (laughs) I don't know. Who knows if he'd ask that. One thing I can say is, having spent some of my uh, vacation driving around the lovely island of Puerto Rico, passive toll collection, very easy, and in an island that's in economic crisis, right? (laughs) Nothing works right, supposedly, in Puerto Rico, except you can drive very easily on their nice highways and have tolls taken out, and it helps to pay for the roads being pretty good. The basic principle of economics for any given jurisdiction, region, state, is you need to bring in money from the outside, right? Taxes don't bring in money from the outside unless the people who are outside pay the taxes. Tolls are, what is it, half, Sixty percent paid by people from out of state. We need tolls. We need tolls because we need to tax the people from New Jersey who are driving to Boston. Okay. Before we move too far off of some of these issues, I, I just want to say there's one more thing we want to get to before we turn to presidential politics. I wake up this morning to read, uh, as I usually do when I wake up, Tom Dudchick's very excellent uh, CT Capital report. He puts together all of these uh, stories from around the state, and I see a big headline that the Scattercoke tribe. Yes, this is the tribe out in far western Connecticut. They uh, have land that's in Kent, right along the Appalachian Trail. I've covered them in the past. They've been back and forth with their ability to get um, federal recognition from the U.S. government. They've wanted to start uh, moves toward a, a third state casino. Danny, they've been rebuffed time and time again, either by the state or the feds. They felt very left out of this process in which the state negotiated with the two existing uh, tribal casinos to build maybe a third casino somewhere in central Connecticut. Now we wake up to read that the Scattercokes want to build a casino, and they've already filed paperwork to do so. They not only said that they've filed paperwork to do so, they issued a press release to just about every member of the media in Connecticut at (laughs) 7.52 p.m. last night. Just enough time for for us for us not to check, and said that Secretary of the State Denise Merrill had approved the third casino, and as the economists say, it didn't happen. That didn't happen. They, 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 folks, if you saw it on the TV news last night, some of the TV stations picked it up. It 
didn't happen. Okay, so so that didn't happen. But what did happen, Danny? They're, they're filing for an LLC. They're trying to uh, create a company that might be able to bid for a third casino because by state statute passed last year, Connecticut's going to build more casinos with tribes. Maybe not this tribe, but with tribes. I think what happened was that the Scattercokes, who, as you exactly said, have been trying for years to be part of this uh, game, uh, uh, created a situation that draws attention to the potential legal conflict between, uh, in this case, MGM is suing the state of Connecticut saying you can't pick two winners and say you are the winners of this casino. You have to have an open process. The Scattercokes are essentially playing into that. So who else is it that's saying that? It's MGM. Well, okay. Harriet, very quickly to you, you cover the southeastern part of the state where these two casinos that we do have are right now. We've seen the struggles over the course of the last couple of years as they try to build up some of their infrastructure. They also see declining take from slot revenues, which, of course, impacts the state as well. I mean, when people in southeastern Connecticut wake up and hear, maybe there's moves by one of these other tribes out in the western part to to start moves towards another state casino. What do you think? Well, uh, <laughs> um, I don't think it's going to make anyone too, too, too nervous just because, you know, there are so many roadblocks in the way. I mean, the Scattercooks are not federally recognized, so they can't build a casino on their own land. Um, you know, whether this plays into, as Danny says, about, you know, the process for this third casino that's going to be up near Hartford or somewhere around here, whether that, you know, bolsters MGM's case that, you know, this has to be more of an open process, that's going to be interesting. And it probably, I mean, from a legal standpoint, it probably does have to be more of an open process, Dan. I mean, wouldn't you say? No. No? No. The legislature is the legislature. The legislature is creates statutes. We we pick winners and losers all the time. We give a, 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 a tax credit to United Technology that enables them to use their, and I won't go into technically what the tax credit <laughs> is, but enables them to use $400 million in tax credits that you and I can't do. The legislature said they can do it. The legislature is the body that sets legal policy in Connecticut. And and they get started once again, setting more policy today. It's budget day here in <laughs> Connecticut. Uh, Danny Har is with us. He's a columnist for the Hartford Current. Harriet Jones is WNPR's business editor and reporter. When we come back, we're going to turn to a few people who've been on the presidential campaign trail, uh, both in Iowa and New Hampshire, getting ready for next week's New Hampshire primary. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, Paul Gianfrido is CEO of Mental Health America, but he's got deep roots in Connecticut, a former state rep and mayor of Middletown who now advocates for people with mental illness. His book is called Losing Tim. It explores his own son's struggle with the mental health system. That's our conversation tomorrow on Where We Live. Today, it's Wednesday, the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. Colin McEnroe is off today. Feel better, Colin. Uh, Dan Haar is with us. He's a columnist for the Hartford Current. Harriet Jones, who's WNPR's business editor, is here with us as well. We're going to turn to some presidential politics. There's been a little bit of news even within the last couple hours. Rand Paul has dropped out of the race. And here's a Donald Trump tweet that you'll like. Based on the fraud committed by Senator Ted Cruz during the Iowa caucus, either a new election should take place or Cruz results nullified. Uh, Great stuff from Donald Trump there. Of course, what we saw is essentially a dead heat between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side, a pretty decisive victory um, by Ted Cruz on the Republican side. Joining us right now uh, from Vermont Public Radio is Kathleen Masterson. She's been reporting from Iowa for Vermont Public Radio. Of course, they're following uh, Bernie Sanders on the campaign trail because, well, he's from the great state of Vermont. Kathleen, where are we reaching you today? Are you still in Iowa? 
I am still in Iowa. The blizzard did not turn out to be as terrible as predicted, but it was enough to uh, delay a flight. <laughs> okay, so so you're here with us for a while, and it's good to talk to you. Also joining us from what we were reporting is the middle of nowhere New Hampshire is Lucy Gelman, who's a reporter for the New Haven Independent, and she's station manager at their uh, great little radio station called WNHH. Lucy, do you know where you are? I mean, is it is it on the map anywhere? Good morning, John. I'm actually in Henniker, which is a lovely town, uh, but my reception is a little spotty. So if I dip in and out, I am very sorry. It is kind of hard to get reception there. So well, let's turn to Kathleen first and talk a little bit about Bernie Sanders in Iowa. I mean, as of right now, we had such a close call, Kathleen, that essentially Bernie Sanders is saying, let's take a, a closer look at this. We've even got a couple votes that are that were coin flip votes. I didn't know that was a thing, but they were flipping a coin to try to figure out who won various precincts. What can you tell us about what we know right now? Sure. Well, it certainly was a really close vote, um, you know, and it was just going up by fractions of percentage points all evening. Uh, in terms of the coin flip, the Des Moines Register is reporting it wouldn't have really changed the delicate outcome because there were... Uh, you know, coin flips on both sides, coin flips that went to Hillary and coin flips that went to uh, Bernie. And so, you know, in a state where it's really not about the popular vote, but about the delegates, um, the, the reporting that I've read suggesting that the coin flips didn't didn't change the outcome uh, too drastically. But it certainly was was really close. Um, a lot of the precincts, the one I went to, the the um, people all showed up and there was uh, Bernie was down by a little bit at my precinct. And then in the realignment period, they lost a few folks. So it's, it's a really human process. You know, it's, it comes down to uh, people counting, people standing up and being counted. And there's uh, a few people slipped out at one point, And that's just how, how it works, is what I'm told. Well, and, and this caucus, I think, is such an interesting template for what we might see moving forward for Bernie Sanders. I think both on the Bernie Sanders side and on the Donald Trump side, there is the sense, Kathleen, that these two candidates— had energized all sorts of new people who were not part of the political process before, who were angry for one reason or the other, and are now just going to get involved. And Iowa, for as oddball a state as it is with this caucus system, might be a pretty good way to figure out how dedicated people are to turning out for their candidates, standing up for their candidate, and um, going through this this process that maybe they've never gone through before. D- does this result for Bernie Sanders say something about just how engaged these this new body of supporters might be? It's a really good point. The Sanders campaign really was relying on both the youth vote and getting out first-time caucusers. And, and it's a little intimidating. I went door-to-door with a bunch of uh, Sanders volunteers, and some people who actually really were supporters of Bernie were a little confused. Am I going to have to go and argue for him at, at caucuses? And that is an option, but you certainly don't have to. You literally just have to show up and and you have two hours that evening to be counted. So uh, when it came down to it, the youth and first-time caucuser turnout were not quite as high for Sanders as it was for Obama in uh, 2008. Sanders got 18% of the vote from 17 to 29-year-olds, and that was down from a 22% share Obama had eight years ago. So um, he certainly was able to turn out those crowds. He's been drawing um, huge crowds in Iowa to all his rallies. Uh, and people came from all over the country to, to get out the caucus. I talked to people from Arizona and uh, New York, you know, people who had really driven overnight just to, to go door-to-door for Bernie. But in terms of those raw numbers, 
Uh, we saw definitely a good turnout uh, record, but not surpassing 2008. That was sort of a, a second record there. Well, and let's turn to Lucy Gelman, who's who's on the ground there in New Hampshire. We just got a tweet from Harvey uh, when I was uh, making fun of Henniker, uh, New Hampshire. Harvey says, hey, I went to college in Henniker. It isn't the middle of nowhere. They have a stoplight. So anyway, uh, Lucy, as, as you're there uh, getting ready for this New Hampshire primary, who are you talking to and what are they saying to you? Yeah, so I'm talking to a lot of different folks, which is something we were interested in doing when when the New Haven Independent sent two reporters. And actually, I'm at New England College, so hi, Harvey, and uh, and uh, waiting to go into a cruise rally that's going to start in a little while. Um, so I'm talking to voters from both sides of the aisle. I'm talking to Hillary supporters and Bernie supporters, and spent Saturday and Sunday actually with Connecticut voters and volunteers who had driven up to canvas for Hillary and Bernie, respectively. And then I've also talked to Bush supporters who are uh, uh, maybe a small but mighty crowd. And uh, and last night talked to Trump supporters at a Trump rally. People are saying all sorts of things. I, I think what you hear on both sides is people are scared. On the Democratic side, I think people are worried about what a, a conservative president might mean for the economy, what it might mean for people who have student debt. Women are worried about what it might mean as far as their their rights over their own bodies. Um, And you have a a lot of young people here as well who think that they can really, uh, really have an influence on the vote. On the Republican side, I think people over and over again, we've heard people who are scared of ISIS. And, uh, and I've been hearing from a lot of people who either are ex-military or have military in their family and feel like the treatment of veterans under the Obama administration has really pushed them farther to the right. Well, I, I want to hear from actually one of the Trump supporters that you talked to. This is a New Hampshire resident named Coey Bowmaster. I guess it would be the fact that he is, you know, a financially stable guy and he's taking care of his own, you know, empire. You know, it's like, why not? Why not be able to take care of us, too, you know? Just the fact of, you know, somebody that's not going to be BSing around, you know, taking other people's word, being a puppet, like, that's that's the biggest thing. Like, <laughs> I, I figure every politician is a puppet. I don't really care who they are, whether it's Trump or what, but, you know, he definitely, like, strikes me as somebody that's not going to be as pushed around. He strikes me as someone who's somewhat less puppety than, than, than maybe others. Look, we just have a couple minutes left, and I, I want to turn to a story that is happening and having some big impact here in Connecticut and, and ask our reporters in the field about how it's playing on the presidential campaign trail. President Barack Obama here is asking for $1.1 billion in new funding to combat opioid and heroin abuse. This comes as the new London region is grappling with a string of terrible overdoses. At least 19 people have been treated at Lawrence Memorial Hospital. One person has died. This is a really big issue in your part of the state right now. Yes, it has been. This is, uh, you know, really dominating conversation down there. Uh, it's We've heard a lot about it from Lawrence Memorial, but it's spread in a lot of the towns around New London, um, Groton, uh, Ledger, Norwich, Stonington, Waterford. We've seen, I think, now 21 in a week. Um, Lawrence Memorial said in the whole of last year, or in 11 months of last year, they saw 93 overdoses. So 20 in a week is pretty incredible. Um, and, you know, the police are trying to deploy more resources to find out where this is coming from. Um, and we've also, I think one of the hopeful things to come out of this is we've seen how effective the wider use of Narcan has been in this. We've seen these, you know, 2021 20, overdoses, only one death. 
Mm. And, and Kathleen Masterson, obviously, as this campaign now shifts for Bernie Sanders to New Hampshire, you and Vermont Public Radio will be turning your thoughts there. This is a big problem in New Hampshire. It's a big problem in your home state of, of Vermont. How much is this going to be an issue in this next week or so and on the rest of the presidential campaign trail? It's a good question. You know, it, it certainly um, is a problem across the country. It isn't something I heard about in Iowa, but uh, I have been hearing about it increasingly on the national scale um, and have not heard yet from voters in New Hampshire if that's what they're they're looking for in a candidate. But, um, you know, as Bernie, uh, Bernie Sanders' home state being Vermont, he certainly has um, spoken about this issue before. Is this something people have been talking to you about, Lucy? Um, I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? Yeah, have, have people been talking to oh, you yeah. about o- opioid overdose and they, the president's plan, the problems in New Hampshire? Yeah, um, uh, definitely on the Democratic side. I would say from the Hillary camp more than Bernie. So when I was spending Saturday with Hillary volunteers, it was something that both volunteers and those making the pitch for Hillary, including our governor, Malloy, um, really turned to when they were saying, this is the candidate you want in office. It was something that Bernie Sanders talked about a little bit at his Get Out the Vote event yesterday in Keene, New Hampshire. Um, and I was right there. Um, he he really focused more on the economy and on Wall Street, and he had voters really revved up. But again, this is something that the Democrats are really talking about. No one on the Republican side who I've covered thus far, so so far just Bush and Trump and will be Cruz in a couple of minutes, have talked about this. But I'm definitely keeping keeping my ears perked up to see it, if it. I, yeah, I, I don't expect you'll be hearing much at the Tez, Ted Cruz rally that you're turning to right now. Lucy Gelman, reporter for the New Haven Independent and station manager at WNHH. Thanks so much, Lucy. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks also to Kathleen Masterson, who's been reporting from Iowa for Vermont Public Radio, the home state of Bernie Sanders. Kathleen, good luck getting back from the Midwest. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. Hey, we just have 30 seconds left, Dan Hart. As you look ahead to next week's uh, New Hampshire primary, what do you see here? What are you looking for in this in this really important race where we, we see big leads right now for Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump? I think you can tie together the uh, constant fiscal crises in these states Bernie Sanders' move about the $15 minimum wage against the 1%. Donald Trump's angry, I think, misinformed supporters and the impossible political gridlock we're in as all signs of the declining American empire. And it is a matter of managing that, not telling people that it is sunrise in America. (laughs) The declining American empire is the one line we'll always hear from Dan Hart, columnist for the Hartford Current. Thanks for all your great coverage of the budget stuff, Danny. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Thanks also to Harry Jones, WNPR's business editor and reporter. Thanks, as always, Harry. Great to see you. You're very welcome. Our program is produced by Tucker Ives with Lydia Brown. Kion Wolf is our technical producer. Heather Brandon's the digital editor. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Solarski. Continue this conversation online, wnpr.org slash where we live. Happy Budget Day, everyone.